Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 200, Dr. Rebecca Crumpler, Forgotten No More. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm revisiting the subject of our 18th episode. Back in February 2017, we ran a profile of Dr. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler as part of our very first Black History Month on the podcast. Dr. Crumpler was the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S. in 1864, and she spent most of her adult life in Charlestown, Beacon Hill, and the Reedville section of Hyde Park. She devoted her career to pediatrics and obstetrics, published the first medical text by an African-American author, and made a point of caring for the marginalized, even traveling to Virginia to attend to formerly enslaved people at the end of the Civil War. I wanted to return to her story in part because I realized how much better my research into Dr. Crumpler would be now than it was in the early days of the podcast, and in part because there have been very important developments in the story of Dr. Crumpler while we've been in quarantine this year. But before I talk about Dr. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is... Dining Out in Boston, A Culinary History Remember restaurants? Not takeout, not patio seating, not eating under a tent in a reclaimed parking space, but real restaurants. I do. Barely. Author James O'Connell remembers restaurants. In this 2016 history of Boston's restaurant scene, he acknowledges Boston's lackluster reputation as a restaurant town, writing... When people think of the history of eating in Boston, some remember it being the land of the bean and the cod. To others, cold roast Boston comes to mind. The most famous dishes produced in Boston have been New England clam chowder, baked beans, and Indian pudding. The region's great contribution to America's culinary life has been Thanksgiving dinner. A shorthand perspective of Boston cooking tends to associate it with Puritanism. This legacy helped shape Boston's reputation as a restaurant town. The 1977 guidebook Where to Eat in America concluded, Boston is not a brilliant culinary town like New York, nor a particularly distinguished restaurant region like San Francisco or New Orleans. O'Connell notes that despite this image of drab dining, Boston has a reputation for good dining dating back to 1800. Over the decades, the city pioneered many features of American restaurant life, opening one of the first French restaurants, some of the first hotel dining rooms, oyster houses, ice cream parlors, and tea rooms. Besides advancing traditional New England cooking, Boston adopted high-end French dishes and later introduced German, Italian, and Chinese items to the menu. And speaking of menus, O'Connell's first chapter explains how this history of dining out in Boston is drawn mostly from the one piece of material culture that restaurants have always shared, the menu. In telling the story of Boston's restaurants, dining out in Boston focuses on the development of restaurant food. By studying menus dating back to their beginnings in the early 19th century, we can trace the development of the city's culinary heritage and better understand the contributing foodstuffs, flavors, recipes, dining customs, and the pressure of fashion. Written bills of fare, as menus were usually called during the antebellum era, appeared at American hotels in the early 19th century. 
Early hotels like the Tremont House used the bill of fare to establish a sequence of courses that were served to all diners. Soup, fish, meat, game, dessert, and beverages, which evolved in nomenclature and makeup over the years. The a la carte menu, which allowed the diner to select individual dishes, was used at independent eateries and was introduced to hotels by the Parker House in 1855. During the 19th century and much of the 20th, the menus proffered in the bustling dining rooms of the Tremont House, Revere House, Parker House, and other leading hotels were encyclopedic, presenting an immense array of courses and dishes. Their cooking was grounded in the traditions of Anglo-America, yet often included French dishes, which helped define fine restaurant food. These restaurants cultivated a mode of gourmet dining that would evolve over the decades and set a standard in Boston for other dining places to follow. They served some of the most lavish meals available in the country. Anthony Trollope observed with irony, The Puritans of Boston are, of course, simple in their habits and simple in their expenses. Champagne and canvas-back ducks I found to be the provisions most in vogue among those who desired to adhere closely to the manner of their forefathers. Why not read Dining Out in Boston while you wait for the world to go back to normal? We are going back to normal one of these days, aren't we? And for the upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a lunchtime virtual talk sponsored by the Mass Historical Society. Longtime listeners know that I'm a big fan of John Adams, and I spend a lot of time in the online Adams papers that the MHS has been curating since the 1950s. While they've been curating the, the paper since the 1950s, the online version is slightly more recent than that. I'm certainly not the only one who gets lost in the Adams Papers. At noon on Thursday, September 10th, University of Tennessee Knoxville PhD candidate Yu Yun Wang will be presenting on the topic, John Adams in China, Globalizing Early America. The talk draws on Yu Yun's dissertation, which is tentatively titled, Nothing but large portions of tea could extinguish it. Cultural transfer and the consumption of Chinese tea in early America. The title's taken from a 1757 diary entry by John Adams, where he notes that only Chinese tea can soothe his chronic heartburn. He was just one of many Americans who relied on tea for its medical benefits prior to December 1770. But why did Adams and his contemporaries believe that tea was beneficial? In a description of his doctoral work, Huang says, I trace the cultural ties that bound Qing Dynasty China and British North America during the 18th century. I argue that the British colonists in North America consumed a great deal of Chinese tea before the American Revolution due to a robust global transfer of ideas, attitudes, and beliefs associated with this tea. It took multiple transoceanic networks of physicians, Jesuit missionaries, and merchants to transmit academic and vernacular knowledge of Chinese tea across the globe. As with most MHS talks, this one is free, but advanced registration is required. We'll have the link you need, as well as a link to buy Dining Out in Boston, in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 200. Before I move on with the show, I want to pause and say thank you to Alexander P., our latest sponsor on Patreon. Folks like Alexander sign up to give $2, $5, or even $10 a month to offset the cost of making this podcast. Their support allows us to pay for our podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, 
and online audio processing tools. It also allows us to add things like transcripts. I recently talked to someone who isn't deaf or hard of hearing, but has trouble focusing on a podcast unless they can follow along in a transcript, which made me grateful that our sponsors allow us to provide transcripts. They also give us access to paid research databases, including two that I used this week to turn up sources about Dr. Rebecca Crumpler that I didn't have access to during our earlier treatment of the topic. Since this is a landmark episode, a double zero episode, I thought I'd thank a handful of other sponsors. Along with Alexander, our latest sponsor, I want to highlight Mariana M., Erica A., Michelle S., Derek L., and Unsurprising, our five longest-running sponsors. I also want to thank Georgia B., our top sponsor of all time. If you'd like to add your name to our list of sponsors, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Thanks again to everyone who supports the show. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Rebecca Crumpler was the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the United States and the first African-American to publish a medical text. We profiled her in episode 18 way back in February 2017. Like most of our episodes back then, it was pretty short, with less than 10 minutes devoted to the story of the Crumplers. By my current standards, our research was pretty shoddy, and I felt like the episode ended with unfinished business. Here's how I closed out the episode at the time. After learning that the Crumplers are buried in Fairview Cemetery, in our neighborhood, I walked over there this morning to take a picture of their headstones. However, after working out the grid system and comparing it with their burial records, I realized that their graves are unmarked. In the show notes, we'll share copies of the burial records for Arthur and Rebecca Crumpler and a picture of the grassy plot where they are namelessly interred. This February, an innocent time when the novel coronavirus was just barely being reported on as a disease that could cause some trouble if China wasn't able to get it contained, I got an email from Victoria Gall the president of the Friends of the Hyde Park Library. She said that she'd heard our podcast, and she wondered if I'd like to hear more about the fundraising committee the Friends put together, who was trying to raise money to get a suitable headstone for Dr. Crumpler. Well, I was interested. I shared information about their efforts on the show, and I gave a small donation myself. They set up a public lecture about the Crumplers for mid-April, and tentatively scheduled a ceremony to unveil the stone, assuming they could raise the money, to coincide with the NAACP's national convention in Boston in July. Then COVID happened. The April talk was canceled, and the NAACP convention was canceled. Despite the pandemic, the group's fundraising efforts were more successful than expected, raising enough to purchase stones for both Dr. Crumpler and her husband, Arthur. Fast forward to July, and I found myself at a small, private unveiling ceremony at Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park. For our 200th episode, I'd like to retell Rebecca and Arthur Crumpler's story, with the help of four speakers at the July unveiling. Now, keep in mind that I recorded these folks outdoors in a pandemic, with planes and trains, wind and birds, and every other kind of background noise known to man. I'll do my best to clean up the recordings, but parts of this will be pretty rough. The future Dr. Crumpler was born Rebecca Davis in 1831 in Christiana, Delaware, a tiny town about halfway between Baltimore and Philadelphia. 
Though Delaware was a slave state at the time, Rebecca was born free, the daughter of Absalom Davis and Matilda Weber Davis. Not much is known about her early years, but she was raised across the state line in Pennsylvania by an aunt whose calling as a healer almost certainly influenced the course of Rebecca's life. Here's how Rebecca described it decades later. It may be well to state here that having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania, whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for and sought every opportunity to be in a position to relieve the sufferings of others. The details up until that point are hazy at best, but in about 1848, Rebecca Davis enrolled at the West Newton English and Classical School. It was sometimes called the Allen School because it was run for decades by the extended Allen family. She may have been among the first class to enter the school after it was founded in 1848. Inspired by Horace Mann, subject of our 116th episode, Nathaniel T. Allen created a model school, where in the words of an 1895 school history, all the most improved methods of instruction should be adopted, and the best talent employed to develop the young and show by example what a true school should be. Among the most improved methods of instruction that were on display at the West Newton English and Classical School in the early years was the concept of universal education. The classrooms were racially integrated and co-educational, becoming one of the first schools in the country where girls and boys learned alongside one another, much less alongside peers of different races. In the school's records, Rebecca Davis is listed as a special student in mathematics. She graduated in 1852. That wasn't the only change in Rebecca's life that year. Rebecca Davis married Wyatt Lee on April 19, 1852, and the couple settled down at 37 Cook Street in Charlestown, not far from the location of today's Charlestown High. Their marriage would be tragic and short as Anthony Neal, an attorney who wrote a profile of the Crumplers for the Bay State Banner, alluded to in his speech at the ceremony in July. Her first husband, Wyatt Lee, was a laborer from Prince George County, Virginia. He died of tuberculosis in Boston on April 18, 1863. In 1853, Wyatt's young son, Albert, from an earlier marriage, died. His cause of death was recorded as dropsy of the heart, as Victoria Gall describes. We don't know for sure how or when Rebecca arrived in Boston, but we do know that it was around 1852 when she married Wyatt Lee, who was a former slave from Virginia. She then nursed Wyatt Lee's son, who was eight years old, when he died in 19, I'm sorry, 1853. Back then, it was said that he died of dropsy of the heart, which probably would have been heart failure with edema today. After graduating from the Allen School, Rebecca Lee spent most of a decade working as a nurse in Charlestown. In her own words, Later in life, I devoted my time when best I could to nursing as a business, serving under different doctors for a period of eight years, from 52 to 60 most of the time at my adopted home in Charlestown, Massachusetts. From these doctors, I received letters commending me to the faculty of the New England Female Medical College, whence, four years afterward, I received the degree of Doctress of Medicine. 
At the unveiling ceremony, Dr. Joan Reed, Dean of Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School, pointed out just how amazing Rebecca Lee's early accomplishments were. Like Dr. Kumpler, my family roots are also found in the South. For me, I think of a brave young Rebecca entering the novel Western English classical school, known then as the Allen School in Massachusetts. I think of a Rebecca practicing as a nurse in Charleston, of applying to and gaining acceptance to the newly founded New England Female Medical College and becoming its only African-American graduate. She did all of this before 1868 when the first historically black medical school, Howard, was founded in this country. When Rebecca Davis started at the Allen School, it would have been all but unthinkable for a woman to study medicine. In a 2012 article on the history of women in medicine, Hilda Lindemann wrote, In 1873, Dr. Edward Clark, a professor of medicine at Harvard, published Sex and Education, or A Fair Chance for the Girls, which went through 17 editions over the next few years. Clark surveyed the best medical thinking regarding women, and after scholarly reflection, concluded that the mental exertion required for higher education sapped a woman's body of its vital forces to such an extent that her uterus would atrophy. Putting a woman's brain to masculine use would thus make her an asexual monster. However, in 1848, the same year the West Newton English and Classical School opened, another school opened in Boston. The New England Female Medical College was founded in November of that year by a Dr. Samuel Gregory, with an announcement in the Boston Evening Traveler and other papers that The object of this association is to educate females for the practice of midwifery, for the treatment of the diseases of women, and for nursing the sick. To aid in accomplishing this object, the society shall establish in Boston, as soon as practicable, a female medical institute, and in connection with it, a maternity hospital. A 1951 history of the New England Female Medical College fills in some of the blanks. For centuries, women in labor were attended by midwives, and physicians who assumed that function were scornfully called men-midwives. Physicians strenuously opposed the entrance of women into the profession. Accordingly, when Gregory opened the college, he had great difficulty in obtaining not only teachers, but also trustees and other personnel. Facilities for teaching were meager, and instruction was fragmentary. Until 1852, there were only two teachers. Sessions were held twice a year and lasted 12 weeks. On several occasions, the institution was subjected to reorganization. Despite these challenges, the college did eventually expand to include a more robust curriculum. The program included a year of classes and then a two-year apprenticeship with a final thesis and exam. Throughout its 27-year history, over 300 women attended classes and 98 received doctoral degrees. In 1873, Boston University merged with the New England Female Medical College, becoming the first accredited co-educational medical school in the U.S. As an interesting side note, Dr. Marie Zakhshrevska, who was featured in episode 111 for inspiring the first playgrounds in Boston and founding the Demick Community Health Center, was on the faculty from 1859 to 1862. Unfortunately, Dr. Zach was likely gone before Rebecca Lee matriculated at the medical college, preventing a full-on crossover episode. 
On March 3, 1864, the Boston Herald published a brief piece covering the graduation ceremony for the New England Female Medical College. This institution closed its annual term yesterday. The exercises were opened with prayer by Rev. J.W. Parker. President Charles DeMond conferred the degree of Doctors of Medicine upon the graduates. Mary Lockwood Allen of Williston, Vermont, Elizabeth Kimball of Reading, and Rebecca Lee of Boston. An interesting communication was read from Rev. Dr. Kirk, sent in in consequence of his inability to be present as expected. Excellent addresses were made by Rev. George H. Hepworth and Rev. Dr. Randall, and appropriate remarks by Dr. Parker and the President. The interesting communication from Dr. Edwin N. Kirk that was read in his absence dealt mostly with the suitability of women to the role of physician, with one specific mention of our protagonist as well. We ask of those who look with disfavor on the aims and operations of this school whether they really do disapprove of women studying any one branch of her creator's works. Whether it is unbecoming in her whom God hath made the nurse of human infancy to acquaint herself with that exquisite organism committed to her care, to understand scientifically those diseases over whose sad progress she is to watch, to know what provision God has made in nature's storehouse of remedial power to remove those ills. As to the want of memory, or comprehensiveness of view, or patience to continue our studies through life, or of judgment in dealing with cases, we cannot see any reason for imputing these to our mothers and sisters. On the contrary, we firmly believe that for the medical profession, woman has some peculiar adaptations, which will make her labors a peculiar public blessing. We believe that in that portion of the practice which even ancient Egypt had the wisdom and delicacy to commit to her, we would do well to imitate their example. In regard, then, to the position female physicians are to occupy in society, and the limits which propriety requires to be fixed to their professional practice, we entertain no apprehension. It is one of those things which take care of themselves. If anyone had said fifty years ago that an unmarried lady was going to leave her English home and follow an army in its campaigns, and pass days and nights unprotected by anything but the dignity of her own presence amid the horrors of the battlefield and the rough realities of camp life and the rude scenes in the military hospital, it would probably have excited more apprehension, more questions, more opposition than our movement has encountered. And yet it has been done, and the name of Florence Nightingale has become the talisman that awakens all there is of reverence and paternal love in a soldier's heart. We have, then, no fears in this direction. Individuals may make great mistakes and bring some discredit on themselves and their alma mater, but there have been indiscreet members of the medical profession of the other sex. Yet the profession lives notwithstanding this, and will live, and retain its hold on the public confidence and respect, while flesh continues to inherit its birthright of maladies. Reverend Hepworth spoke of this as a great pioneer movement destined to be completely successful in accomplishing its aims. His observations among the soldiers' hospitals at the South had led him to mark the superiority of female nurses, and to think of the importance of their being educated in an institution like this. Patriotism should prompt women to qualify themselves and engage in the work. He rejoiced that among the graduates on this occasion was one of another color than those who had hitherto received the honors of a medical school. Doubtless the first instance of the kind. 
The college had done nobly in thus opening its doors to students without regard to color or race. It's clear from his comments that the administration was aware of Rebecca's pioneering position as the first black woman to earn the title of doctress. The title seems quaint, doesn't it? You might think, given Dr. Kirk's address, that doctress was a holdover from an earlier time, already destined for the dustbin of history. You'd be wrong, though. A January 1864 article in the Ladies' Home Journal makes it clear that Rebecca Lee and her two fellow members of the class of 1864 were the first to receive this title, while earlier graduates of the same institution had simply been called doctors. Women are beginning to assert their own style and title. A brilliant correspondent thus calls her attention to it, Mrs. Sarah Josepha Hale, in Godey's Ladies' Book, for the present month, in a notice of the New England Female Medical College, speaks as follows. The Board of Trustees deserve a commendation for the good judgment shown in the change they have adopted in the style and title of the diplomas conferred on women. Hereafter, it is to be doctress of medicine, equivalent to the Latin term medicinae doctrix. The college in Philadelphia has also adopted this style and title for its graduates. So there will be no more foolish assumptions of the masculine form of address by women practicing medicine. Doctor will signify a gentleman of the profession, Doctress, a lady physician. For our newly minted doctress of medicine, graduation must have been bittersweet. While Rebecca was studying at the Female Medical College, Wyatt Lee died of tuberculosis in April 1863. Rebecca's new life seemed tinged with grief, but a new romance would soon blossom. Arthur Crumpler was enslaved at birth on a plantation in Virginia. Because of his enslaved status, because of careless record-keeping, and because his enslaved family would be broken up and scattered to the winds, it can be difficult to retrace the earliest days of Crumpler's life. At the dedication ceremony, Anthony Neal explained how the most basic details, even Mr. Crumpler's age, can be hard to confirm. Arthur's headstone, as we can see, indicates that he was born in 1835. But we really don't know for certain when he was born. It is true that in the 1870 and 1880 census records, he his age as 35 and 45 respectively, which suggests that he was born in 1835. But a Boston Sunday Globe article of April 3rd, 1898, titled Boston's Oldest Pupil, who's 74, who goes to evening school, claims that he was then 74 years old, suggesting that he was born about 1824. It also states in the body of the article, however, that he was 71, <laughs> which leaves the impression that he was born in 1827. <laughs> Further complicating matters is an 1863 Civil War draft registration record, which lists his age as 26, suggesting that he was born around 1837. And finally, the city of Boston death certificate lists his age as 71, which would lead us to conclude that he was born in 1839. That profile in the April 3rd, 1898 edition of the Boston Globe carries the most widely accepted version of Arthur's origin story. Arthur Crumpler is well-preserved and fine-looking. His speech appears to be that of the average northerner, 
He was born a slave in Southampton County, near Jerusalem Courthouse, Virginia, two miles from the Tucker Swamp Meeting House on the estate of Robert Adams, a large Virginia land and slaveholder. His father, Samuel, was a slave on the estate of Benjamin Crumpler, which adjoined the Adams estate. His mother was a part of the Adams estate, and Arthur Crumpler, as well as his other brothers and sisters, following the condition of the mother according to the Slave Code of Virginia, became at birth a portion of the Adams estate. Arthur grew up in Southampton County on the Adams estate. One day, Robert Adams fell ill and shortly afterward died. Arthur was then about nine years old. According to the fashion in Virginia in those days, the estate was partitioned, or sold out. At this sale, both parents, as well as his sisters and brothers, were sold away, and none of them has been seen from that day to this. Arthur was not sold, but bid in by John Adams, son of the elder Adams, who took a fancy to him because he had managed to out-wrestle his young master. He tells the incident thus, We were all standing around waiting to be sold. I went up to John and said to him in a boyish, defiant way, John, I can wrestle you down. I was very strong when a boy. He said I couldn't. Well, we had a good tussle, and I tussled him so hard that he would not let me be sold, but took me for himself, and until the war, kept me ever near him. Crumpler went to live with his young master at Smithfield, Virginia, in the Isle of Wight County. There he stayed one year after which he was bound for four years to Tom Ripley, a slave trader at Four Squares in the same county. Almost at the expiration of that time, John Adams married the daughter of Benjamin Chapman, who lived about six miles from Four Squares. Crumpler went then to live with John Adams' wife's family. His master finally bound him out to a blacksmith named Robert Barrett in Smithfield. Crumpler chose blacksmithing as he had the choice between carpentering, shoemaking, and bricklaying. Under Barrett, he served all but five months of his trade, finishing with Abraham Lehman, another blacksmith, about five miles from Smithfield. At the ceremony, Mr. Neal also related how Arthur Crumpler escaped from slavery. Shortly after the start of the Civil War, Arthur Crumpler escaped bondage. He and other fugitive slaves sought refuge at Fort Monroe in Hampton County, in Hampton, Virginia. Now, they called it Freedom's Fortress because those slaves who reached it were declared <coughs> contraband of war and weren't returned to their owners. Fort Monroe was then under the command of Major General Benjamin F. Butler, who in time would become the governor of Massachusetts. A blacksmith by trade, Arthur Crumpler, shot horses for the Union Army. On July 6, 1862, he left Fort Monroe for Boston, showing up in this city three days later. The article in the April 3, 1898 Globe elaborates, After learning his trade, he worked for a year at $250 in clothing. Crumpler wanted to go away from Smithfield to another part of the county, but his master, although kindly disposed toward him, would not consent. His master set him up with a shop, however, which he ran until the war broke out. And then he, with a number of other slaves in Isle of Wight County, ran away and took refuge on the gunboat Cumberland and was transported to Fort Monroe, where he shod horses for General Wool. He also shod horses for General McClellan in the Seven Days Battles on the Peninsula. He told the Globe, 
On July 6th, 1892, I left Fort Monroe for Boston and landed here July 9th, 1862. On reaching Boston, Crumpler was cordially received by the anti-slavery people. He was given a job as a blacksmith in the Edward Kendall Works at Cambridge. There he worked four years, and since that time has made a good living taking care of stores in Boston, an occupation he's now following. Continuing the narrative, Anthony Neal describes how Crumpler ended up in Boston and connects the dots between the self-liberated slave and the educated doctress with a straight line running through the founder of the Allen School. On reaching his destination, he was fortunately received by the abolitionist, educator, and philanthropist Nathaniel Topless Allen. Allen wrote in his, in his diary on February 20th, 1863, that a number of black people, contrabands, had migrated to West Newton, just outside of Boston, to find employment, much to the disgust of certain Irish laborers, and that among them was Arthur Crumpler. Allen befriended Crumpler and took him in, allowing him to sleep in his barn and to perform chores. According to Allen's biographer, Mary Ann Green, quote, in November 1863, Arthur cast his first vote after being challenged on every possible ground the authorities could trump up, owing to the prejudice against him as a Southern colored man, close quote. Green further noted, Mr. Allen was his firm champion and saw him safely through the ordeal. Arthur Crumpler probably met Rebecca through his association with Nathaniel Allen. Allen founded the West Newton English and Classical School, appropriately known as the Allen School, Dr. Crumpler had prior contact with the educator before studying mathematics at his school in the mid-1870s. She married Arthur Crumpler a little over a year after she graduated from the New England Female Medical College, within three years of his arrival in Boston. According to her yearbook from the West Newton English and Classical School, Dr. Rebecca Lee wed Arthur Crumpler in St. John, New Brunswick on May 24, 1865. Of this period, Rebecca wrote, I then practiced in Boston, but desiring a larger scope for general information, I traveled toward the British Dominion. Perhaps that indicates that the racism in the British Dominion, what we now call Canada's maritime provinces, was somewhat less crushing than it was at home, allowing her more freedom to study and to practice. In her book, she also wrote about the secret of happiness in marriage, indicating that there may have been more than simply professional reasons for the happy couple to spend time in St. John. She wrote, I will just add here that the way to be happy after marriage is to continue in the careful routine of the courting days till it becomes a well-understood thing between the two. Dr. Crumpler went to Canada seeking additional educational resources and a chance to practice and she would soon find ample enough opportunity to practice in an entirely different realm. Dr. Reed said, Dr. Crumpler was a dreamer who showed a fortitude and a belief in self, a belief that she could and that she should make a difference in this world, including the world of those who were enslaved. We know that following the Civil War, she actually joined the Freedmen's Bureau in Virginia, where she was witness to and actually experienced the pain and suffering associated with racism and sexism. 
both in Virginia and on her return to Massachusetts, Dr. Crumpler continued to commit her life's work to those who lived in the margins, those who were and are still today often neglected, women, children, the poor. Her belief, hard work, and persistence enabled Dr. Crumpler's dream of making a difference in the world become her reality. For she, for me, she is a role model. An example of finding one living one's purpose. Dr. Crumpler herself wrote, After the close of the Confederate War, my mind centered upon Richmond, the capital city of Virginia, as the proper field for real missionary work, and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. During my stay there, nearly every hour was improved in that sphere of labor. The last quarter of the year 1866, I was enabled, through the agency of the Bureau under General Brown, to have access each day to a very large number of the indigent and others of different classes in a population of over 30,000 colored. The couple stayed in Richmond through at least 1867, and according to Victoria Gall's research, they were back in Boston by 1869, where they made a home on Joy Street on the north slope of Beacon Hill. Dr. Crumpler wrote, At the close of my services in that city, I returned to my former home, Boston, where I entered into the work with renewed vigor, practicing outside and receiving children in the house for treatment, regardless, in a measure, of remuneration. Anthony Neal describes this time in the lives of the Crumplers. Dr. Crumpler practiced medicine briefly in Boston before moving to Richmond, Virginia, where as an assistant physician... She treated ill free people through the Freeman's Bureau. Upon returning to Boston in 1869, she and her husband, Arthur, initially boarded at 68 Joy Street, uh, which a lot of people don't know was the home of Coffin Pitts. They moved not far from his house to 20 Garden Street the following year. By 1870, the couple had moved to Garden Street, also on the north slope of Beacon Hill. While they lived in Beacon Hill, the Crumplers began attending the 12th Baptist Church, which is an incredibly historic congregation with roots in the original African Meeting House. As Reverend Arthur T. Gerald Jr., the 13th pastor of the 12th Baptist Church, explained at the dedication ceremony. Our church at 12th Baptist started out on Beacon Hill, behind the stadium, because back in the 18th that's when uh, Rebecca and Arthur got involved with 12th Baptist Church. At that time, it was the first African meeting house. It turned into a museum. Out of the first African meeting house, several uh, churches in Boston were established. Of course, number one, because... I'm the pastor of the 12th Baptist Church. We also share lineage with also People's Baptist Church that's located also in Boston. And Charles Street AME Church has some roots in the first African meeting house. Now, if you ever come to the campus of 12th Baptist Church, you will find that our major 
office building is called the Second African Meeting House because of our tribute and lineage to the First African Meeting House. After the church split off from its parent congregation in 1840, the early membership roles read like a who's who of Beacon Hill's black abolitionists. They include many subjects of our February 2017 series on Boston's resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act, including Shadrach Minkins, Anthony Burns, and Thomas Sims, along with Lewis and Harriet Hayden and their pastor Leonard Grimes. Under Grimes' leadership, the church had been a stop on the Underground Railroad prior to emancipation, and it continued to push for black civil rights after the Civil War. This advocacy was still ongoing when a young BU Divinity student named Martin Luther King Jr. attended 12th Baptist Church in the 1950s, and it continues today. With little documentation to build on, Anthony Neal explains that Arthur Crumpler's club memberships imply that he was carrying on the church's activist tradition. He also explains how the lack of records implies yet another tragedy in the lives of the Crumplers. One child, Lizzie Sinclair Crumpler, was born to the couple in December of 1870. Now, Lizzie likely died in childhood, as the only information found about her is her birth record. Arthur Crumpler was employed as a porter at 122 Tremont Street in Boston. He also served on the finance committee of Grant and Wilson Club No. 1, an organization formed in 1872 by Black Republicans of Ward 6. For a few years in the 1870s, the Crumplers lived apart, at least some of the time, as Rebecca taught in Wilmington and Newcastle, Delaware, and Arthur stayed in a series of boarding houses. While a separation like that would mean trouble for many couples, it seems to have indicated foresight on the part of the Crumplers. During this period, they began buying land, and by 1880, they had moved into a house on Sunnyside Avenue in the independent town of Hyde Park. Today, it's Solaris Road, the last street in the Reedville section of Boston's Hyde Park neighborhood before crossing the Dedham Town Line. It was soon after the Crumplers moved to Hyde Park that Dr. Crumpler published her book marking another significant first in her life, as related by Victoria Gall. She continued to care for local women and children during and after the period she wrote her common sense book, a book of medical discourses in two parts. Uh, it was published in 1883 and was dedicated to nurses, mothers, and all who may desire to mitigate the afflictions of the human race. My chief desire in writing this book was to impress on somebody's mind the possibility of prevention. This is 1883. This book is thought to be the first medical book by an African-American author. Now in this book, there is a recipe for a healthy, unsweet biscuit, in which Janet made some for you, and there's some samples on the table with a recipe. Thanks, Janet, for your many test things. Um, be warned, and when I bagged them, I had gloves on. And um, they're from the 1880s, but the recipe's from the 1880s. But if that doesn't make you feel good, we also had Made by Seasons Catering 
a lemon thyme honey shortbread biscuit that would go with the 2020. So you get a little sweet fix there also. As the podcast audience, you can't sample Dr. Crumpler's unsweetened biscuits, but you can peruse her book. I'll embed an online copy of the book in this week's show notes. The family's move to Hyde Park didn't break their bond with the 12th Baptist Church. And a series of news articles from 1891 about a scandal within the church highlights that the couple were leaders in the congregation by that time. That February, the Boston Globe reported that something untoward had happened between Reverend H.H. Harris, the sixth pastor of the church, and a teenaged choir member. The trouble among the colored people of the 12th Baptist Church of this city is creating a great deal of excitement. It is perhaps the greatest church scandal ever created among the colored people here. It is made all the more prominent as this church includes in its membership some of the most influential and wealthiest colored people in this city. It was the first colored church to become united with the North Baptist Convention. It has the largest membership and has money in the bank. It is the opinion of a large number of people that it would be a very bad thing if the church is rent in twain. For several weeks past, meetings have been held. A young woman, Miss Mamie Armistead, besides being a member of the society, was one of the choir leaders. Miss Mamie is one of the prettiest girls in the church. She is about 18 and has a peach-blow complexion with snapping black eyes and glossy hair and a reserved manner. It was last April when, upon a statement by Miss Armistead, charges were brought against acting Pastor Harris. For this, she was retired from the church role. Mr. Harris, who was temporarily filling the pulpit made vacant by the death of Mr. Fairfax, hastily resigned his position and left the city. A few months later, Reverend Harris was back in town demanding that the church clear his good name. The elders of the church weren't having it, and Dr. Rebecca Crumpler was one of the church leaders who signed her name to a letter to that effect. As Reverend Gerald is quick to note, Arthur was also a leader, serving as a member of the Board of Trustees. Uh, Rebecca and Arthur were active. Arthur was on the trustee now. I guess he was a forerunner for me. Because my name is Arthur, spelled the same way that Arthur's name is spelled. Not Arthur, but Arthur. And I have a particular uh, connection to the Crumplers, not only in terms of, of name, but also in terms of being uh, their pastor. They didn't know me then. <laughs> that was way before my time. But I claimed them as some of the rich heritage and history of the 12th Baptist Church. Despite the bond that Reverend Gerald feels, the scandal around Reverend Harris would eventually lead the Crumplers out of 12th Baptist. As the controversy raged on, supporters of Harris elected new members of the Church Board of Trustees, despite the fact that the old ones, including Arthur Crumpler, had not resigned. The situation came to a head in August 1891, with the Globe reporting on a near siege at the church. It was between two and three o'clock yesterday morning that a young man living in the neighborhood was wending his way homeward, when his attention was attracted by a moving light in the church. As he drew near, he heard the sound of hammering within. 
Making the best investigation possible from the exterior, he soon became convinced that the opponents of the youthful clergyman were putting the Temple of Peace and Religion in a condition to withstand a siege. This early scout, who's friendly to Mr. Harris, at once notified Sexton Michael Brown, who in very short time mustered a force of a dozen or more. Then the order was given. On to Phillips Street. They came, they saw, they conquered. But by peaceful and persuasive means. They could not enter by the main doors, that was barred to them. But they finally obtained ingress through the back windows. Once within the building, the invaders found that they outnumbered the obstructionists almost two to one. There were seven of these, namely Henry Clark, William Cook, Edmund F. Jones, and Arthur Crumpler, trustees, a man named Barnett, another named Taylor, and J.H. Franklin. Somebody offered the suggestion that they should reason together. The anti-Harris people, being in a woeful minority, were with very little difficulty persuaded that this would be the better course. So it was determined to put the matter of possession of the premises to a vote, and of course the invaders carried the day, or rather the night. Then the obstructionists retired gracefully and with full honors. The pro-Harris people then began to look about them more closely. They found that the main door had been secured with a stout bar of wood, firmly fastened with screws. There were also placards in the name of the Board of Trustees announcing that the church would be closed until further notice. Harris's supporters won the day, and the church stayed open. A municipal court judge would eventually hear a case determining which competing Board of Trustees would control the church. Arthur's side lost, and he left the church. He soon joined the Calvary Baptist Church, and by 1896, he was among the leadership in that church. In February 1896, the Globe reported on a special service to install the new officers of the church, and Arthur Crumpler was among the new members of the Board of Trustees. No photos or likenesses created during Rebecca Crumpler's lifetime survive, so the only way we know what she looks like is from descriptions. Like this one, that was published in the Boston Globe in 1894, read here at the dedication ceremony by Victoria Gall. So far, here's a challenge to everyone. No one has found a photograph or an illustration of Rebecca Crumpler. What we're using is a circular, generic image of an African-American woman at the time. But in, the 18, in 1894, the Boston Globe described her as a very pleasant and intellectual woman and an indefatigable church worker. She's tall, straight, with light brown skin and gray hair, and has made an enviable place for herself in the ranks of the medical fraternity. <laughs> Unfortunately, that would be the last year of Rebecca's life. Dr. Crumpler died on March 9, 1895, at the age of 64. Uh, and her cause of death was fibroid tumors in the body. Whether or not it was planned or unplanned, Dr. Crumpler is burying view of her home on the other side of Motherwood. So in spring and fall, you can see the house. And on the back table, there's a map from uh, 1912 of the cemetery 
the street used to be called Sunnyside, now it's Solaris, and the house is still on that map. Having survived his daughter and beloved wife, Arthur was left to carry on alone. Unlike Rebecca, we do have a surviving likeness of Arthur Crumpler. It ran as part of a profile of him in the April 3rd, 1898 edition of the Boston Globe, under the headline, Boston's Oldest Pupil. The story described how he'd been attending the Franklin Evening School in the South End for years. Because he had been enslaved, both law and custom in Virginia prohibited anyone from teaching Arthur to read and write when he was young. When his enslaver had him run a blacksmith shop, Arthur tried to teach himself to read in secret, but the task was too hard to take on alone. He told the Globe reporter that his lack of literacy cost him the wages he was supposed to earn while working as a blacksmith for the Union Army at Fort Monroe, after his escape from slavery. When I came away from that fort, the government owed me $160 for eight months' work shoeing horses. That's what I agreed to work for. I was told that they had not made any preparations for the payment of contrabands, and they said that they would give me $35.36 if I would settle. Then they took hold of my hand and held it while I made an X to some written and printed matter. I don't know what it was. I suppose it was some sort of release, though. After I did it and received so little money, I made up my mind I would never make an X again beside my name written by someone else. After moving to Boston and marrying Dr. Crumpler, Arthur tried again to learn literacy. And failed again, as told at the dedication by Anthony Neal. Now, I'm sure many of you know it was a crime for a slave to learn to read or write. Unable to read or write, Arthur attended the Wells School at night at his wife's suggestion, but bad eyesight brought him no success. Seeing her husband's disappointment, Dr. Crumpler told him that she would do all his reading and writing for him, and she did. The Globe picks up the story from there, quoting Arthur as saying that Rebecca did all his reading and writing for him down to the time of her death about four years ago. When she passed away, I found that I should have to depend upon myself if I wanted to learn anything. I could not read the newspapers during the last war, but if we have a war now, I shall be able to read all about it myself. I can do my own signing. I am not making any more crosses. These Boston schools are a great institution, and I'm sorry that more of my people are not taking advantage of them. One is not too old to learn how to read and write and figure. Yes, I can do something in arithmetic. I have considerable time now, and I find considerable pleasure in reading my Bible and papers and books. I sit down and practice my writing lessons and write my own letters. And then I sit down and add up, subtract, multiply, and divide my figures all by myself. There is nothing to excuse any colored man or woman in the city of Boston from learning how to do these things. As I dug into the scant sources about the Crumplers again for this episode, with increased access to research materials thanks to our Patreon sponsors, I realized that versions of Arthur's profile were picked up by papers around the country. First, there was a version used by many papers as filler. When old-timey newspaper editors would lay out their stories, there would sometimes be small gaps between pictures, stories, and ads. Nobody wanted to see blank space in a newspaper, so wire services offered filler stories by the inch. Ranging from a few words to a few paragraphs, these stories filled in the gaps between the actual news, 
and a two-sentence version of Arthur's night school education ran as filler in dozens of papers. What was more interesting, however, was to realize that at least two papers in different parts of the country ran explicitly racist and anti-racist versions of the same story. Down in Bryan, Texas, the Daily Eagle printed a version of the story that took up about a quarter of a column, and followed the facts as printed in the Boston Globe pretty closely. In the middle of the story, a bit of commentary is interjected, describing Arthur's progress after enrolling in night school. He was admitted, but his progress was so painfully slow for two years that his teachers despaired of even teaching him the alphabet. Though he's a keen, bright old man and shows evidence of having been the equal in intelligence of the ordinary slave. In other words, even the smartest ex-slave is too stupid to learn how to read, so why bother teaching them? Contrast that with coverage in The Appeal, a St. Paul, Minnesota-based, black-owned newspaper that had national circulation. Crumpler was born a slave in Virginia. Like many persons who can neither read nor write, he has a graceful enunciation acquired by contact with persons of culture. His penmanship shows careful and patient effort. The copy itself is something wonderful, considering his age and the age at which he began. Arthur Crumpler's death followed 15 years after Rebecca's, on May 8, 1910. He, too, was buried in Fairview Cemetery, and the plot alongside hers within sight of the home that they shared for the last 15 years of her life. Unfortunately, with no heirs and few assets, no headstones were placed upon their deaths. The first black woman to earn an M.D. in America would languish in an unmarked grave for 125 years. Until this July, that is, when we gathered at Fairview Cemetery to celebrate the crumplers and unveil their headstones. The fronts of the stones are simple with the couple's names and dates, and a line noting that Rebecca was the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S. On the backs of the stones, the committee wanted to include something more descriptive. The inscription on the back of Arthur Crumpler's stone drew from his profile as the oldest pupil, which described his life after Rebecca's death. Mr. Crumpler is a member of the Calvary Baptist Church. He now lives in a single room, 43 Piedmont Street, around the walls of which are shelves containing many books and pictures. On the table in the center of the room rests a large Bible, the source of delight and comfort to one who, although born a slave, resolved despite great obstacles to learn to read the Bible and the newspapers and to write so that he would know what he was signing, to cipher so that he could keep his account straight, and was not afraid to begin at 70. Based on that description, I suggested the following inscription, which the committee was kind enough to use on the back of Arthur's stone almost unchanged. Enslaved at birth, escaped to freedom. Man of faith, man of letters, Boston's oldest pupil. At the dedication, Victoria Gall pointed out, Rebecca Crumpler was truly a remarkable first who believed, and this is a quote from a book, that if you didn't ask a question, you wouldn't get an answer. Dr. Crumpler likely didn't think she was important or realize her significance, but we all do. Reverend Gerald committed to bringing the story of the Crumplers back to the 12th Baptist Church. So today, as you're gathering here today, my heart is glad 
my glory rejoices because of what you're doing to keep the dream alive. I just uh, would like to get some of the information that the good dean shared and our good historian shared and bring that back home to us and talk about So those younger people at the church, they get a greater sense of the real historical achievement of people of color who did things before it was even appropriate to do. We now celebrate the fact that Black Lives Matter. But we realize way back when Dr. Crumpler went to medical school and was the first graduate of color, that is a significant achievement. And I thank her for tenacity, for willingness to stick in there, and to become that all that God would have her to become. And we are blessed and we are enriched by her life and her commitment. The inspirational nature of Dr. Crumpler's life, and her status as the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S., inspired this inscription on the back of her stone. The community and the Commonwealth's four medical schools honor Dr. Rebecca Crumpler for her ceaseless courage pioneering achievements, and historic legacy as a physician, author, nurse, missionary, and advocate for health equity and social justice. Dr. Joan Reed reflected on the importance that Dr. Crumpler holds to the Black women who have followed in her footsteps and to the Black and brown girls who will do so in the future. Another way of seeing or beginning to comprehend the enormity of Dr. Crumpler's accomplishments is to place them in context. In 1860, there were only 300 women physicians in the United States. In 1920, there were only 65 African-American female physicians in the United States. And today, black female physicians only represent 2% of all physicians in this country. When I think of where I am today at Harvard as a dean, as a professor, I think of a Rebecca Comfort who opened the door for me to even be here. But I also think of the hundreds of thousands of faculty in our U.S. medical schools and less than 300 black female professors across 145 schools. As a black woman, as a pediatrician, as someone who was actually born in Boston, a rarity at Harvard, <laughs> whose godparents and family members lived or currently live in Dorchester and Mattapan, who worked in a local community health center, whose grandchildren attend schools in Dorchester and Roxbury, and whose current work focuses on breaking down barriers, providing access and opportunity, nurturing and educating children and youth, eliminating disparities in health, and confronting racism, sexism, and discrimination. Dr. Crumper stands as an example of excellence. She was doing this work long before others. Oh, if Dr. Crumper were here with us today, 
think of what she would still be accomplishing. But I believe she would tell us that there are more young girls like Rebecca, more black and brown children, more youth living in poverty, more individuals waiting to be found, nurtured, encouraged, mentored, waiting to make their difference, to have their dreams fulfilled. She would tell those youth to persevere, work hard, and believe in their ability. She would tell all of us that it is our responsibility to guide, to help the youth of today and tomorrow cross thresholds, break down walls, and achieve their potential. It will be good for them. It will be good for us. It will be good for America. To learn more about Dr. Rebecca Davis-Lee Crumpler and Arthur Crumpler, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 200. I'll have an online copy of Dr. Crumpler's book, as well as pictures of the couple's headstones. I'll also include a picture of Arthur Crumpler, a picture of the campus of the New England Female Medical College, and a picture of the West Newton English and Classical School. I'll link to the sources I used this week, including a scrapbook of clippings about the Female Medical College, the Boston Globe articles I quoted from, racist and anti-racist versions of Arthur's oldest pupil profile, and Vicki Gall's research into the Crumpler's residences in and around Boston. Plus, I'll include links to stories about the dedication ceremony from the Boston Globe and NBC News. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and Dining Out in Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I let you go, I want to share some recent feedback we've gotten from listeners. Somebody who goes by EF on Twitter is wading through our back catalog, and just got to an episode where we shared feedback about episode 19, which profiled Boston Harbor Hermit Anne Windsor Sherwin, and the Hermit of Hyde Park, James Gately. Episode 20 Endnotes mentions the city archaeologist wanting to dig the hermit house in Hyde Park. Did that end up happening? Unfortunately, EF, it did not. I think the bureaucratic tangle of jurisdictions between state and city made that plan a pipe dream at best. EF also listened to our very first interview with Brooke Barbier in episode 22 and said, Hilariously, as soon as guest number one said she'd want a beer with Paul Revere, I was like, She's going to call my man John Adams insufferable, isn't she? I would 100% find Revere insufferable. Finally, EF listened to episode 18, saying, Just finished episode 18. Do the Crumplers have headstones yet? Well, you know how that one turns out now. Michelle S. listened to our story about Bleeding Kansas in episode 195 and reached out on Twitter. Just caught up on my listening today. Great episode per usual. I learned a special Boston by Foot walking tour on abolitionists a few years ago. I had no education on any of this. It was eye-opening. Thanks for filling in my knowledge on the Immigrant Aid Society. Thanks, Michelle. I'm glad I could fill in a missing chapter of Boston history for you. And hearing our discussion of Esther Forbes' biography of Paul Revere in episode 193, she commented again, Jake, just caught up on my listening and heard you ponder this book. It is excellent. 
I was given a first edition by a friend. It's one of my treasured possessions. Forbes deserved that Pulitzer Prize, most certainly. The folks at the Paul Revere house also heard episode 193 and said, This whole episode of Hub History is fascinating, but we really love the shout-out to our Paul Revere biographer BFF Esther Forbes for her classic work, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. Though out of print for a few years, it's still our go-to. I would say thanks to both of you, but it's really Esther Forbes who deserves all the credit for that one. Finally, recent podcast guest Judy Cataldo heard me mention the Museum of Science flying a dinosaur around dangling from a helicopter in 1984 and emailed me with a memory. Hi, not sure if someone else who's old enough to remember mentioned this, but the reason there are so many photos of the dino soaring above the Charles is that the Museum of Science had flooded the various media with ads, telling people to come out on the 4th and see a dino soar. It was a big deal, and I was really annoyed I had to miss it. I, on the other hand, was five years old and living in deepest Appalachia at the time, so I don't have any memory of the See a Dino Soar promotion. How about you? Do we have any other listeners who remember this one? We love getting listener feedback. Whether you want to ask obscure questions about four-year-old episodes, or share obscure facts about 35-year-old marketing campaigns. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we missed. If you'd like to leave us some feedback on this episode or any other, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.